Witch Roll Podcast. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. 
They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right. Me and my hype man, Adam, are back. I am taking roll call. Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Another edition of Roll On, Roll On Life, I guess, our AMA Ask Me Anything formatted version of the show where me and my hype man, Adam Skolnick, journalist, activist, author, co-author of David Goggins' Can't Hurt Me and Bon Vivant at Large joins me to break down, I don't know, current events a little bit and do things topical, answer listener questions, et cetera. So thanks for tuning in. Adam, how you doing? Doing good, man. Uh, um, I've been Bon Vivant at home. Right. Like the rest of us. You're getting your swim run workouts in though. I am. I've been doing a lot. Yeah, I can thank you for that. I, yeah. I love this sport. It's pretty cool. I just got an email. It's not cool. Did you get the email? It depends on how you define cool. Did you get the the email from Otillo today that they were going to be hosting their world championship event in Sweden and now they had to pull it. Oh, so I did it's not canceled. know that. It's canceled for the year. Yeah. I think and Inga Din is, is happening or not? I think that not? one is, ha- is That's happening. That's this week. Yeah. But the world championship event is getting shelved. I'm sorry. As to hear of that. now, at least. So. At the same time, we can still get out and swim run. I love it. That's yeah. it. That, and what I love about it is it's not quote unquote cool. I'm the only person <laughs> that I see. Yeah, there's the nobody else doing running it. around the streets of Santa Monica with a pull buoy attached to your leg in a wetsuit. And 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 I don't even wear uh, goggles like most swimmers. Uh-huh. I wear a mask because I'm so used to free diving. So this low profile <laughs> swim, like really a free diving mask. Do you get any weird looks? Oh yeah, you get weird right. looks, and it, but you know I have gotten quicker. Like it's interesting when I first started training for the Catalina race, I was like not. I I'd been running on a treadmill, and mm. now and running on the street, like I was not very quick at all. But I have gotten quicker running longer distances during quarantine. I've definitely gotten more fit during quarantine. It's it's a trip. And this last weekend was the first time I actually shed the wetsuit and was just in jammers and uh-huh. a rash guard yeah. and the pull buoy. And it felt so much better running in that. Than yeah, the water temp that, is good right yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I remember nice. when I did the world championship event a couple of years ago, I got together with the local swim run crew in the days leading up to the race. And we did a workout through the streets of Stockholm. So it was me and like, I don't know, eight, Dudes running literally down very busy streets on a weekday in wetsuits with pull buoys and caps on and the whole thing. Yeah. And swim run is such a part of the culture there that no one looked twice. Like business people are walking down the sidewalk and we're <laughs> running, you know? It's such a weird thing. It is weird. And then swimming in your shoes. I keep thinking yeah. like who 
who is watching me get in in my running shoes swimming. But right. I do love it. I mean, I have to say, like, there's something about the workout that afterwards, like the combination. And I've been doing kind of uh, like a three-mile run, a 1.1-mile swim, and then like a two- to three-mile run on the back end. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it takes me like an hour and a half. And I afterwards, I feel... Like, it's amazing how I feel. Yeah. It'd feel better than if I just ran or if I just swam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's definitely a full body experience. Yeah, it's Good, been man. fun. Well, you're man. looking fit. You might be the fittest I've ever seen you. Thanks, man. But yeah. you have a baby on the way, so things might shift a little bit. The dad bod is real. <laughs> yeah. The fear of the dad bod. Yeah. yeah. So what we do here is we make a couple announcements. We're going to talk about a couple top of mind subjects. Um we're going to share some good news, some show and tell, and we're going to take a quick break and then do questions from the audience. So to kick things off, I'm excited quick, about this, by the way, this, this new we're format. To, we're we're tightening to, it. We're trying to, yeah, we're trying to tighten it. Yeah, we're we'll see how it goes. Yes, I'm not exactly uh, circumspect in in how I speak, so I don't know how much I can adhere to the strictness. Well, you just tell the, the pipe man to back <laughs> off if, right. he starts, if he starts cracking the whip. All right. Well, it's your job to crack the whip. All right. A um, couple quick announcements up top. Uh, voicing change update. This is my new book. Very excited about it. We're still in the process of finalizing it, but most of the heavy lifting is done. Uh, Timeless Wisdom, inspired from the Rich Roll podcast. It's going to be coming out in November. It's looking beautiful. I'm super proud of it and excited about it. I'll keep you guys up to date on exact release date, but I'm so proud of this creative expression, which was very much a team effort. Uh, A lot of really talented designers, and it's been a collaboration with them and with the guests, of course. So I'm excited to be able to share my guest wisdom in a different kind of format. So I'm excited that's been for going it. on in the background with everything else that's been going on. I've been working on that pretty um, intensely. Uh, also, if you want to have your question answered here on the podcast, you can leave it on our Facebook group, but we would actually prefer you leave us a voicemail. Uh, that way we can play the audio on air, which is really fun. We're going to do a little bit of that today. The phone number, just so you guys all have it, is 424-235-4626. And I want to thank everybody who filled out the survey that we posted on our Facebook group about this uh, subscription idea that we're working on. It was super helpful to get everybody's input and feedback. We're taking it to heart, and that is also something that is in motion, and I'll keep you posted on that as well. And then one final quick follow-up thing. We waxed on the other day about Queer Eye and Mm -hmm. Karamo, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) this is... I still can't believe this happened, but a couple of days later, I got a DM from Karamo on Instagram, and he's like, "Hey man, I love the podcast. I'd love to come on. I, I was I heard you guys talking about me, which completely blew my mind." Has that ever happened before with other with anybody else that uh, you were know, kind of throwing maybe. out there on the podcast? It has to have happened before. Maybe I don't know. Might be the first time. Okay. I mean, I just couldn't believe that he. Yeah. I, I think he's. I think he's BSing me. I don't think he actually. Somebody might have told him, but. Uh, whether he listens or not, I don't know. We'll ask him, but I got him on the schedule for August, so I have that to look forward to. It's really assuming exciting. that that happens. What was really funny about that is that my 13 year old daughter, who loves Queer Eye, she I showed her the DM. I was like, "Check it out! I'm going to get Karamo to come to come over." Uh, she's like, that's not him. Like that, somebody, <laughs> that's a bot account. And I was like, no, it's got a blue star. It's Look, the blue check. She's like, somebody hacked his account. Like she just couldn't wrap her head around. 
the idea that Karama would have any interest whatsoever in anything that I'm doing. So I think I she's think not going to believe might actually it. Listen to that she, episode. She, she, she might. She, <laughs> the first she's not going to believe it in, <laughs> until he actually shows up, and then she'll wonder, you know, how much I paid him or something. <laughs> I guess. So we'll see. But if you're listening, Karama, thank you. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. It's exciting. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to just come and be in the audience for that one because uh, I'm excited. Yeah, I, I can't excited wait about to, it. to hear him. Um, what are we doing now? The teachable moment? So, yeah. So, uh, we're going to start with some top of mind subjects and, and it starts with a teachable moment. So, uh, what do you have for us? So one thing that comes up a lot and I get a lot of questions around this is how to set and achieve a goal. So I wanted to just spend a couple minutes speaking broadly, um, about my perspective on that. I think it's a nuanced thing. Like I do think it's really important to have a goal. But I don't think that it's crucial that you obsess about that goal. And what I mean by that is we have to have something to look forward to that then allows you to create structures that move you in a specific direction. Like you can't, you can't score if you don't know where the goal line is, right? So you have to establish what you're working towards. And that brings everything else into focus. A perfect example of this is... I dithered away most of the quarantine not working on this book right. because there was no deadline because we're self-publishing it. It just seemed like this ephemeral thing and I could finish it whenever I felt like it. And what that meant is basically I got nothing done on it for like a year. Hmm. When we finally established, look, it's got to get done by this time and that time frame seemed almost impossible to achieve, then I got my butt in gear and I created a plan and I worked towards it and accomplished it. For me, that's what it took. Maybe that's not the way it is for everybody, but I do think that there is something magical about setting a date on the calendar where you want to have accomplished a certain thing. So not just the goal of write the book, but actually have a deadline imposed, either right. a, like an external I mean, deadline. The goal in this case was complete this manuscript by this date. Right. Okay. Right. So the so deadline date, the deadline, deadline you know, creates structures around achievement of the goal. Yeah. But then I kind of forget about the goal itself and I become very focused on the tasks that have to be completed every single day. So I break out a, a calendar, a big one of those big desktop calendars, and I try to figure out what has to happen every single day in order for this to become real. Hmm. And then my focus is just on what needs to happen that day. And I forget about the big goal, and I forget about even what has to happen tomorrow. Hmm. Then it becomes about process, because I really think that unless you can fall in love with process and immerse yourself in process, that the goal doesn't really matter. Um, and, I, and I should say also foundational to this is that whatever goal you set for yourself should be the right goal. I think just picking any random goal is not great. Like that goes into a longer conversation about the inner work required to set the appropriate goal for yourself and understanding the why behind it. You need clarity on the why. Why is this goal important to you? Mm -hmm. What is it gonna do for your life? Once you have that sorted out, you set the goal and then you create all the tasks that have to happen on the specific days leading up to that. And you can create little stepping stone goals along the way that you can celebrate when you achieve them because that keeps you invested, it keeps you excited, it keeps you intrigued by this journey. Like I think it's good to reward yourself and take those moments periodically to celebrate the small wins because big goals are achieved by tiny little wins every single day. Yeah. 
So I think that's super important. Um, I do a terrible job at that. I don't really give myself space to celebrate anything. You like should. That. I know. You should. You know. I think it feels indulgent to do that. Yeah. But I think what that does is it makes me feel more emotionally invested in the process. And again, it's all. I can't emphasize this enough. It is about process. And there's something about once you've initiated that process and you're working you're moving forward and you're getting those little wins every single day that creates momentum. And there's something really magical about momentum. I just know for me personally, when I have momentum, then I become this moving object that's very difficult to stop. Hmm. And I don't know what it is about that psychologically or neurochemically, but for me, it works. Once I've established momentum, then other things feel like a distraction and I'm much more invested in the process itself. I would say in addition to that, that it's important to create accountability for yourself. You can be accountable to yourself, but I think it's also important to be accountable to externalities, other people who will help keep you on track. I think you need to be selective about who those people are. You want people who are on your page and are going to celebrate you and are are also, you know, encouraging you towards the achievement of this goal. You don't want to be accountable to people who don't believe in you or no. think that you're wasting your time. So who you pick to be your accountability partner, I think is really important. That person should also be somebody who's not afraid to call you out when you're missing the mark. Yeah, right. You know, this is something that you see all the time with fitness goals. You do it with somebody else or with a small team or a group of people. You're more likely to get up at five o'clock in the morning and show up for that group run or that November project workout because you know your friends are there waiting for you and they're going to notice if you don't show up. Right. So it's the positive accountability, the people who are going to say, keep going, you're doing great, and the negative accountability of people who are going to hold you to account if you don't show up or you start to slack. Yeah, and, and there's something specifically about writing books, too, that the process kind of takes over your brain in a weird way. I mean, it's well, for it's me. Well, so all-encompassing. Yeah, it's, you know? like, it's yeah. like a tunnel that you can't get out of, uh -huh. and the momentum becomes just charging through it. And it can become distracting. You can get, like, lost in the tunnel. Mm. But for me, when I'm working on something, then at any time of day, ideas can pop in to improve whatever that piece of right. writing is that I'm working on, especially if it's a book. But then those breaks, whether it's going out for a swim run workout or taking a walk or whatever it is, are important to then gain perspective. And if often you don't, that's if you don't ideas do that, come in. Right, that's yeah. where the idea pops in or the thing you didn't think of when you're so mired in the details, you know, you have to provide space for that. The as problem well. solving. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you miss like a daily goal accountability-wise, um, but you still have the bigger goal on the calendar. Do you have advice not to get too down on yourself or, or how do you, like if you, if you, you start to fall off? Yeah. If you start to fall off, how do you refocus? Well, I think you then recalibrate, you break out the calendar and figure out, um, all right, so I'm behind what's going to have to happen for me to achieve this by this date. You either change the date or you create a different structure to which you're more likely to adhere. Mm -hmm. I think you have to do an inventory and say, why is it that I fell off or couldn't maintain this you know, daily routine? Maybe I was overly optimistic about what I could achieve in a certain day. Mm -hmm. Like make sure that whatever you establish as your daily practice is manageable and fits within the construct of your busy life. Yeah. If you, you know, overcast that, then you're setting yourself up for failure. So I think it's important that the things you have to do on a daily basis um, are, are very manageable because the truth is 
in order to achieve big goals, you don't have to do that much in a single day, right. as long as you're doing it consistently. It's the 1% right. rule. Like yeah. there's a compound interest that occurs. Like if you're showing up for a half an hour every day to do something, if you do that every day for a year or 18 months or, or two years or 10 years, the difference is astronomical. It's not just an additive thing, it's an exponential benefit that you reap from doing that. So again, it's all back to the now, the day. And it's related to principles of 12 step, which is, you know, it's just about the moment. Like, what are you doing today? Like in sobriety, it's like, make sure your head hits the pillow sober. That's all you gotta worry about. You mm -hmm. don't have to worry about tomorrow. With respect to achieving a goal, it's like, okay, here's a, here are the things I have to do today. And I don't have to worry about the things I have to do tomorrow or that big intimidating goal that's looming out in the surface that just seems impossible. And there's a liberation that comes from like, all of a sudden, once you have it mapped out and you know it's about the little bricks to build the big structure, um, there's a lip, you know, when you're just sitting there looking at the big structure, this big design that you have in your brain, and, and you're like, wow, how am I going to ever do that? Um, and you just focused on that. It, it does become intimidating. But right. once you, and then even you start become laying paralyzed. one brick, yeah, you can become right. paralyzed. But once you lay one brick, you realize, wait a second. I can do this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just everything becomes manageable. Yeah, and every brick that yeah. you lay creates additional confidence yeah. in your ability to achieve the thing that feels impossible. And a perfect example of that was me training for Ultraman. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, like yeah. I wasn't, you know, contrary to what people might suspect or imagine, like I wasn't some crazy gifted you know, endurance athlete. Like I worked really hard to achieve my ultra endurance goals. And when I began training for this race that just seemed like an absolute impossibility, it was hard for me to wrap my brain around the idea that one day I would get to a place where on the third day of this ultra endurance double Ironman race that I'd be able to run 52 miles. Hmm. And it was just brick by brick by brick over a, an extended period of time, you know, leading up to doing a 40 mile training run, which was like the craziest thing I could ever imagine doing. Six months earlier, that would have seemed impossible. And it's literally just by doing little things every single day that are moving you forward. Beautiful, I love it. So um, let's, uh, there's a couple things we wanna talk about from the news. First is uh, Congressman John Lewis's passing. Mm. Um, just give a little bit of a, a recap. Um, John Lewis was the child of a sharecropper, um, ended up going to Nashville for college, uh, where he got involved in desegregation of lunch counters. Um, and that Nashville crew ended up being really foundational and formative of the, of the student movement within the civil rights movement. He became a freedom rider, one of the original 13 freedom riders that rode Greyhound buses through the South to desegregate um, the national transportation system. Mm -hmm. um, he ended up the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is basically the student arm affiliated with Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was his organization. Um, he was the youngest speaker of March on Washington. He led the Selma March. Um, he got beat. And, uh, and he's so been arrested like 40 times. Yeah, something like that. And um, a congressman for over 30 years. I mean, the man was a giant. Yeah, he was a giant. He was the conscience of Congress. And what a beautiful expression of life. Like somebody, when I think about him, I think about somebody who lived their life in strict accordance with their values mm. and, and never really wavered, even when, 
you know, basically culture and society was up against him. Like he was, he had the fortitude and the sense of self to never, you know, basically allow himself to be swayed from what he believed in. And that strength, that center of gravity that he was able to hold for so many years is so powerful and why he's so revered, Mm -hmm. you know, he will certainly be missed. And it's interesting that, you know, he's lived most incarnations of this civil rights movement. I mean, Mm -hmm. instrumental in the Civil Rights Act getting passed all the way up through the recent protests at the very end of his life. He led a sit-in in 2016 in in Congress mm-hmm. at floor of the House of Representatives to try to force um, the Republicans to move on gun control issues. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he was protesting all the way through. Yeah. You know, I aspire to that level of advocacy and strength. Yeah. Grayson Schaefer, who I know from my Outside Magazine, um, he used to be an editor there. He posted something on Instagram just thinking about the amount of courage it takes to march into the teeth of an attack uh, of, you know, it was it was vigilantes and cops on the bridge mm-hmm. in Selma, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and to lead that group going in there unarmed, ready to get beat, knowing you could die. Knowing, yeah, yeah. knowing that, you know, it was a very perilous situation. And always, you know, his, his whole thing was nonviolence mm. from the beginning. Yeah, and learning those Gandhian techniques yeah. and to, to understand that like I take away from like reading about him recently, it's just like, like the incubator that was Nashville. You don't think of Nashville as an incubator for the civil rights movement, right. you know, but it really was because it wasn't just um, John Lewis. Other people came out of that and, and kind of the, the entire student arm of the civil rights movement came out of the, the, the people right. that were working together in Nashville. Yeah. Um, pretty interesting. Yeah. He was beloved on both sides of the aisle. He was. And he will be missed. Obama wrote a beautiful piece about him on Medium, and also the New York Times wrote an extended obit that is worth your attention, and I can link those up in the show notes. Cool. Um, So then, obviously, the big issue here uh, this last couple weeks has been the reemergence of a virulent COVID-19 in Mm. the United States of America and all that that has wrought. And I think that we're both, we don't want to get too politicized here with it, but a couple things have come out, stand out for me. And one that I wanted to talk to you about and get your take on was this idea of of masks or anti-authoritarianism and, and the American love of freedom and how that's being reflected right now in two very different takes on things. Mm-hmm. One is the anti-mask crowd, who people who don't want to wear masks, see the orders of mask ordinances around cities and states as uh, an example of authoritarianism. And then in Portland right now, there are uh, extended Black Lives Matter protests. And in and the city uh, has been dealing with that for ever since George Floyd died. And more recently, the federal government has sent in customs and border patrol agents that are basically jackboots on the ground that are taking people off the street, even people who aren't at the protests have claimed to be arrested and and in blacked out cars by unidentified federal agents and then turned up, you know, next thing you know, they're in federal court. Mm -hmm. So in a way that feels very authoritarian, to a lot of people, especially those protesters. And and you have kind of those two things juxtaposed. On on the mask front, I was reading a a great article in the Salt Lake Tribune by Courtney Tanner, 
And it was about how in the conservative counties, they don't want their children to have to wear masks. Mothers are spitting in masks uh, at county council meetings. Um, and then you go to Huntington Beach, California, right. where the guys, Chad and JT. Yeah, who? what's their YouTube channel, those guys? Uh, Chad goes deep. <laughs> right. And and they have the amazing, they, they, these guys are hilarious and they turn up at like city council meetings all the time and troll the city council. In that council. video, they're going around trying to give away free masks. They're trying to give away free masks. People are getting super angry at them. Exactly. And it's the same thing that's happening in Provo, Utah. So it's not just happening. It's not fringe, really, these mm -hmm. reactions to masks. It's so interesting. I yeah. think- you know, what I find fascinating about this is the different lenses through which people perceive mm. authoritarianism. Yeah. On the one hand, you have the anti-mask crowd who are, you know, rallying against this edict that we wear masks as an infringement on their liberties. And on the other hand, we have these federal troops, essentially, this militarized police force that's patrolling the streets of Portland. Yeah in uniforms that don't have names and don't necessarily designate their authority and you know unmarked vehicles and vans etc rounding people up arresting people and there's a certain contingent of people who i would suspect that the people who are against wearing masks don't have such a big problem with that and the question then becomes and vice of course, versa yeah and, and vice versa right so the yeah the people exactly so the question then becomes what is truly authoritarian? What is the real risk here? Where are we seeing inroads on our on our democratic ideals mm -hmm. in living in a truly liberty-oriented democratic society? Mm -hmm. Right? To me, you know, and I have to like, is this my cognitive bias? Like to me, you know, I don't have a problem wearing a mask. It's a mild in I don't like wearing a mask, it's a mild inconvenience. But to the extent that there is any evidence whatsoever that it might be helpful or protective for other people to, you know, keep them from getting sick, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. But when I see troops in a city on federal authority against the wishes of certain state governors and mayors and, and local politicians patrolling streets and arresting people, seemingly, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm, I haven't borne witness to any of this, but I read that Esquire article about this. That's more deeply concerning to me and yeah. feels like a greater threat to our liberty and far more authoritarian than this idea like, hey, let's wear masks and look out for each other. Yeah. Um, I, I talked to somebody who was at the protest in Portland on Friday night and, uh, and there, it was similar to what we had here where the police kind of did escalate the tension as opposed to try to de-escalate it. Um, but they if weren't police. If you ask them they who they are, police. will they identify themselves? I think that that has started to trickle out. It's, it's really hard to know exactly what's happening because when you come, when you have these kinds of really tense situations, nobody is an um, objective observer, you know? So it's hard to know exactly what's mm -hmm. happening and what is mistakes, mistakes being made that are legitimate infringements on civil liberty and what is like, they're doing it on purpose. Like, you know, where, where's that line? It's so gray, but we do know the mayor of Portland has asked for the federal agents to leave. Mm -hmm. um, we do know that. Um, and you know, there was this line from the Salt Lake coverage, uh, this was in Provo. And one of the uh, leaders, a Republican who sits on the County council in Provo said, I don't like government mandates. And he's a, he's on the County, 
he's right. on the county council. He's I don't like government mandates, but and that's true, right? Like so, a lot of us don't like it. So the question is, like, what is it in the American soul that makes us these love this lover of liberty, but maybe to our own detriment, to the point that we we want we don't want to be told what to do, no matter what. But in this case, in terms of the masks, people are doing it. And it could really come back at them in, in the form of, of a virus that could kill them. Like, what is that? And, and, and it's already kind of made us nationality non grata all over the world. We're down to about mm-hmm. 28 countries we can go visa-free. Mm-hmm. used to be we can go almost anywhere with the American passport. That passport has been devalued. Right. So there's a, there's a, a stricture on our liberty right there, our right. inability to, to travel globally. Yeah. It's so fascinating how vociferous and angry people are, certain people are when asked to wear a mask. And you see that in that comedic video with those guys. They're basically like, hey, do you want a free mask? And people are flipping them a bird and telling them to fuck off. <laughs> yes. And getting really angry. It's not a mask, right? it's a muzzle. So why is it why is it making people so angry? Mm-hmm. I think is one question. Like what what is that rage all about? And that's something we talked about a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah. That like repressed rage that's just beneath the surface that I think has a lot to do with, you know, people feeling like they don't have as much agency in their lives as as they feel like they deserve. Um, and that's a longer thing that we went into before, but juxtaposing that onto what we're seeing in Portland and then contextualizing it with this uh, this argument around free speech, like where where is the speech being impinged? Like if you're unable to protest because you're going to get arrested, even if you're doing it legally, that seems like a greater repercussion and inroad on free speech than being told to wear a mask. Well, they they relate, right? And why is and 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 how and why did wearing a mask become so politicized? Well, that I think takes us back to the QAnon and all that, all the right. YouTube coverage and and the negativity around this. The people who think the pandemic is a hoax, which you did hear in that in this, that comedic video in Huntington Beach, mm-hmm. but you also hear it in the in the council rooms and in the protest lines in Salt Lake City and Provo that people don't believe they don't believe in the virus. So there's this idea that we we want freedom to the point of our own detriment, right? There's something about that's very American about that, that we want freedom to, so badly it's to our own detriment. And, you know, our friend Dan Butner studied this when he did Blue Zones of Happiness. Like mm-hmm. where where is where does the paradox of choice kind of tip against you when you have so much individual freedom that it actually works to reduce your happiness. Right. So the example that Dan cites is Singapore, right. which is basically an authoritarian Government. rule. Yeah, yeah authoritarian. Yeah. Where and and also a place where yeah, basically where for certain seemingly uh, minor offenses you can get caned and t- you know t- the the repercussions are very severe. Yes. And yet the the happiness quotient there seems to be very high. Yeah. Because Which is super interesting. Some of that's basic needs are taken care of mm-hmm. versus freedom. So here we we lust after freedom, but we don't do a great job of taking care of people's basic needs. Uh, you know, we we don't have the education system is is has suffered. Uh, we could go all the way through the list. You know, so it's interesting. It's just something to think about. Like like with with the on an individual level, what do you think about that? Like for you, you kind of create your own discipline around sobriety around 
um, being plant-based, all of those things. And you could look at that as I'm not allowing myself this or that, but what has come with, is there a freedom in that? Or is there a freedom within a structure that we should be aspiring to instead of all freedoms all the time? Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that if you look at any creative expression, some of the, some of the most beautiful works of art come out of restriction, right? Like the independent movie where they had no money and no time and yet created this amazing work of art that stands the test of time. Mm. Had they had a hundred million dollars to do it and as much time as they wanted, that doesn't necessarily mean that it would be of more value or even better, right? You hear this time and time again with artists, like because there were restrictions placed upon them that forced a level of creativity that, that it, they were forced to tap into something that they didn't know that they had, mm -hmm. right? And that brought greater expression to whatever it is that they were trying to say. You know, you could say the same thing, like to my own personal experience, okay, I know drugs and alcohol, I only eat plant-based foods. I've, you know, I've, I've removed a lot of things from my life. So I have restricted choice in certain regards. Doesn't that mean that I'm less happy or that I don't enjoy my life? And my answer is that, that, that it's quite the contrary. It's the opposite. Through that restriction, I have created greater freedoms for myself. And there's no better parallel to what's happening because if, if we all wear masks and we can get a handle on this virus, we can actually have our lives back. Right. And I think another thing- <laughs> Less restriction. Another thing worth noting that, that, that <laughs> our mutual friend, Dave Goggins would probably echo is that we need to develop a greater capacity for anti-fragility. Yes. We need to be more emotionally resilient to everything that's going on. Yes. And that comes through putting yourself through difficult situations personally, where you become adapted to being outside of your comfort zone. Extrapolating that, it means that when you are in the presence of somebody who doesn't agree with you, or perhaps you're anti-mask, but somebody wants to give you a free mask, you don't lose your shit. <laughs> You don't, you know, you don't like, have a fit in public. You can maintain <laughs> some level of equanimity and grace and kindness with other people. But the fact that everybody is so hair-triggered by everything, when I see that, I see a lack of emotional agility. I see, I see a very emotionally fragile populace that could benefit from maybe focusing more on their own personal challenges and trying to become a better version of who they are rather than shouting at other people who are voicing some opinion that, that, right. that perhaps they don't agree you, with. You, you guys have to see the Chad and JT thing. Shout out Chad and we'll, JT. We'll put, a, we'll put a link up um, in the show notes. Yes. I think Casey tweeted that one out too. Oh, did he? Yeah. I, um, my thing with masks, my hair trigger is the people that wear the mask, but with their nose peeking out, Right. which is basically like, would you walk down the street with your dick hanging out? Well, of your there's pants? that meme everywhere. Yeah, like it's the same as doing that. It's exactly. The same. I know. Right. I see that all the time. Like, why wear pants? I see that all the I time. I trust the guy. Like, I remember being in Paris and seeing a guy, like just a naked guy walking down the street, and he's less creepy than someone who's like half dressed. I also told Chris Houth in one of our Coach's Corner episodes that we did one at the very beginning of the pandemic. We were talking about masks and I, I said the masks 
the masks suffer from a branding problem. <laughs> if we just called them aerobic capacity enhancers or something like all the arguments around like you're breathing your own, you're breathing carbon dioxide, right. you're not, you, this is making you more sick or it's impairing your immune system. Like the science doesn't bear that out. It's no. not true. But to the extent that you may believe that it's inhibiting your oxygen intake. This is just making you a stronger human being. Your body is you adapting to less oxygen, which is making you a better athlete over time. So if we just rebranded or renamed these things as athletic enhancers. <laughs> Cardiovascular maybe, yeah, aid. Basically, yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe they, they would have a higher ad adoption rate. I don't think so. I think that uh, there's some web, there's some YouTube video out there that we're not watching. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. That, that's it's not part of my algorithm of suggested videos. No, no. the evils of masks. But, um, but you know, listen, I think uh, for me as a longtime travel writer where I, I had this many times with the American passport, like where I could just breeze through without a visa to so mm -hmm. many countries and to see that kind of flake away is sad to me, but I do understand it. And I kind of felt like at some point that could come that could happen. And um, to me, that's sad. Like it's, it's, it shows at one time it was the passport that can get you almost anywhere without having to go through the process of getting a visa. Mm -hmm. And now most of the places we can go without a visa are in the Caribbean. The Bahamas just banned us. Um, we're banned from Europe. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented. Yeah. It, it hasn't happened before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the incidents rates are, you know, through the roof right now, yeah. Florida, Arizona, California, you know, we've got real problems trying to contain this thing. Yeah. And to the extent that wearing a mask might help, I'm gonna wear a mask. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend, Amanda Decadene, is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is THE conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media.
cool. Let's go into something, another segment. We're calling it Show and Tell, and uh, where we get to talk about things that we watched, we saw. We're going to, you know, it could be food, it could be media. Um, well, let's start. I want to start with Tommy Rives. Oh, right. We should start with While Tommy we're on Rives. the subject Sorry. of mass. So, Tommy Rives, um, Tommy Rivers Poozie, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a legendary beast of all things running, endurance, and ultra endurance. He's a beautiful guy. Uh, and a very accomplished runner. I think it, I think his PR in the marathon is something like 218. He's won two, I believe, two consecutive rock and roll marathons. Uh, beloved in the endurance community, a legend on the trails and the road. And uh, a guy that I met when I flew out to Utah to run the final marathon with the Iron Cowboy for his 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days. And, and Tommy had spent quite a bit of time with the Iron Cowboy. I don't know how many days of that adventure. He joined James Lawrence, but it was a lot. And so I got to run with him and mm. talk to him and, and spend a little time with him. And just a beautiful guy, loving guy, smart guy. He's got two daughters and a wife. Um, I think he's getting his PhD. I know he's a, um, he's a, a physical therapist, but I, I think he's in grad school. I don't know if he completed grad school or not. But anyway, the reason I bring him up is because he is in the ICU right now. I think he's been in the ICU for over three weeks, coming up on a month, with COVID-like symptoms. I'm not sure that he's been technically diagnosed with COVID. How old do you but think he's he got is? Maybe early 40s, okay. I think. He has severe respiratory distress, and he's in very serious condition right now. And he's been posting videos on Instagram uh, sharing, you know, what it's like to be in his condition, and this is this is one of the fittest human beings you're ever going to see. I mean, you said a two eighteen like marathon specimen of, you know, just this the eight pack abs and just lithe and you know with the beautiful stride and just a magnificent, beautiful athlete and and, and like I said, a very loving guy. And he's very sick right now, mm. so there's a GoFundMe um, that's been set up to allow people to help contribute to his significant medical expenses. Um, and I just wanted to wish him well and alert people to the GoFundMe. This is a guy who's given so much to the community and really needs our help right now. So I'm going to link up that uh, that GoFundMe in the show notes. And you can find him on Instagram at Tommy underscore Rives. Awesome. So we're thinking about you, Tommy, and his brother, uh, Jacob, as well, who's been trying to help get the word out about this. We're with you, man. Just goes to show you, and, he'll, and Tommy's like, wear a mask, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, so it could when hit you anyone. think there is, look, people with metabolic disease, people who are overweight, people with cardiovascular and respiratory ailments are more susceptible to COVID than than more the, the average seri person. The serious aspect right, of COVID, right, right. Yeah. And like I said, Tommy is not officially coronavirus diagnosed. Um, I, it's, it's weird that they yeah, can't figure out what this is, but to the extent that perhaps this is COVID, um, this is a, a guy who you would think is very unlikely to be suffering to this extent from something like this. So just be aware. Get well, Tommy. So um, switching gears. Switching gears. Uh, thanks for that. Sorry about that. Yeah. My computer has died. Right. So I need to power it up. But let's get to uh, Darren Olean's new show with Zach That's right. Efron. Down to earth. So most people have probably been made aware of this by now, but my man, Darren O'Lean, who's been on the Olean. podcast a bunch of times, 
um, has a new show with Zac Efron on Netflix. It's called Down to Earth. It's a limited series. I think it's six episodes. Yeah. Where these two guys travel to really cool destinations, Iceland, Costa and explore Rica. everything from regenerative agriculture to sustainable energy and everything in between. And yeah. this is really cool. It was the number one show on Netflix a couple of days ago. I don't know where it is right now. It's certainly in the top five or ten at the moment. Um, and it's been great to see. Darren get introduced to a much more mainstream, broad audience mm -hmm. than he was originally. I and mean, this is a guy who deserves a spotlight as much as anything. He is um, not only one of my best friends, but he's a wealth of knowledge on so many subjects. And this is now an opportunity for everybody in the world to experience some level of his expertise. And I think it's great. And to pair it with Zach is, you know, this is a guy who can, you know, he's so world famous that, that you know, people are going to tune in just for him and then they get to see Darren. And I just think it's really cool. So I'm really proud of them. And there's a, there's a kind of interesting backstory to this, which yeah. is that Zach got introduced to Darren because he heard Darren on the podcast. Right. So that's what got him interested in Darren to begin with, which is super cool. So I feel like that's awesome. Like I, you know, I helped you know behind the scenes. I helped yes. these two guys get together. Um, in fact, I was out cycling a couple of years ago. My friend Connor Dwyer, who's been on the show before, who's really close with Zach and with Dylan Efron, um, Zach's brother, who I'm friends with, and they were going on and on about Darren. I was like, well, let's, when we finish the ride, let's go over, we'll go over to his house. So I, br I brought these guys over to Darren's house. They met him. They're like, oh, Zach, Zach's going to be so mad that he wasn't here. And Darren's taking them through all his superfoods and his special water stuff mm -hmm. and, you know, everything like that. And that led to those guys getting together and ultimately creating the show. So I'm going to take full credit for the show. <laughs> no, I'm not Without you. Um, but, but, but I'm just really, I'm really excited about it. I think it's a perfect blend of kind of entertainment and education. It's certainly yeah. oriented around a mainstream audience. I think if you were to ask Darren, he would have preferred that it was, it, it struck a, a much more serious in-depth tone. But, you know, in order for shows like this to kind of, cross-pollinate and reach the most number of people, they also have to be kind of light and entertaining as well. So, Well, I think um, I would like to talk, ask Darren, because for someone who has brought a, I mean, I'm 95% plant-based occasionally. I eat a little bit of fish, but less and less so now. But I've brought my wife, who is plant-based, April to Mongolia for a month and uh -huh. you know Argentina. And, and Iceland looked to be in that same score. Like it's not easy to be plant-based in some of these locations. Right. I would love to hear if you, when you, I think you're gonna have the guys on, right? It'd be good to have well, Darren answer to that. No, I'll, ha I'll have Darren back on. Um, Zach has left the country. Okay. I don't know that I'm, I'm, I'm at, uh, <laughs> I can say where he is. I know where he is because I, I wanted to get those, on, those guys on together. Um, I'll get Derek back on to talk more in depth about it. That'd be an interesting thing. I'm sure there's all kinds of cool behind the scenes stories. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That'd be cool. Awesome. And then, then uh, another documentary, uh, but not a series, but a, a, an actual uh, feature length doc came, was finally released. And, and that was yeah. fabulous. I know you were excited about this. Did you watch it? I did watch it. Yeah. We are Freestyle Love Supreme. Yes. What a great movie. It's an amazing movie. Do you want to tell people uh, yeah, the so, basics? So if you caught my episode a couple days ago with Dr. Andrew Huberman, I had, for the audio version of the podcast, I had Utkarsh 
Ambudkar on for a brief like 15, 20 minute segment to talk about the movie. Ukarsh is longtime friend of mine um, who has been on the podcast. He was on two years ago. I think it's episode 373, if I'm not mistaken. How did you meet him? Um, I just, I know him through friends of friends and um, he's friends with DK too. Uh, and what I love about Ukarsh is just this amazing, I mean, I love a lot of things about him, but but his story is remarkable in this incredible arc that he's had from being somebody who was very talented as a young person, but also very much in his ego and, and, and lost in his addiction, that it really hamstrung his ability to move forward in his career. And it wasn't until he got sober that he's had this beautiful renaissance where now his career is exploding. Mm. But one of the part of his origin story is being part of this small group of very talented artists called Freestyle Love Supreme, of which Lin-Manuel Miranda was a founding member of, which is essentially this group of people who would get together and do these freestyle, spoken word, spontaneous performances that were very audience engaged. It yeah, started it's like in a improv- bookstore. Yeah, it's improv, but with a rap. rap battle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and this is the kind of creative crucible that birthed everything from In the Heights to Hamilton. Like yeah. Hamilton doesn't exist without Freestyle Love Supreme. Probably it not. It all goes back to that. Yeah. And this documentary is a elegant and lovely portrait of not just that story, but the love and friendship between these young men. And they have incredible footage of them when they're all super young. Doing yeah, because it, like, it started between Anthony, Tommy, and Wesleyan. And was uh, did Lynn go to Wesleyan? Lynn went to Wesleyan yeah, as so, well. So four guys from Wesleyan basically that became friends, but two of them were really tight and they were, the, they were freestyling together. And then Lynn joined the group uh-huh. and it was like, you know, <laughs> It's just right. like a supernova. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and uh, and they, you, so you see these guys from eight, the early twenties, and, and you follow them to the Edinburgh, uh, you know, theater the festival. festival. Yeah, the Fringe Festival. Uh, you follow them back to New York. They're like they get the keys to the, to um, a bookshop that that uh, became their their house theater, mm-hmm. a little black box theater. Um, and With like you watch thirty them. seats. You have like thirty seats, and then you see you know, Lynn's arc and you see how some people kind of, I think, um, Ukarsh came, came in a couple of years later. later. Yeah. Yeah. But when he came in, he was like, like Lynn called him nuts and bolts, the best pure rapper they had. I know it was crazy. Lynn basically is like, he's the most verbally dexterous rapper I've ever seen. Yeah. And, but then they trained him to like steer it towards improv comedy mm-hmm. and make it lighthearted stuff versus right. kind of the big up yourself type rap battle mm-hmm. where that kind of tradition that he came from. Uh, it's so interesting to see the footage. The footage itself is is worth watching. So you could see this. And then, and of course, like you said, you learn um, Tommy's secret to becoming a Tony, Tony winning director. Latching yourself on to a <laughs> MacArthur genius. Just, just <laughs> yeah, follow yeah. Lin-Manuel no. wherever he goes. <laughs> But the movie is very clear that Tommy <laughs> elevates everything yes, that they do. Yes, like yes, Lynn yes. was was you know sure to point out that you know yeah. Tommy was the guy who could call him on his BS or That's tell right. him when he was missing the mark a little bit. And you know the fact that those guys have stayed together through thick and thin and and growing older and all the kind of permutations of life, and always come back to this one thing, like the reverence that they have for 
this creative, this very pure creative expression, the mm. recognition that not only do they owe it to that for all the success they've had in their life, that it's critical in keeping them fresh and creatively inspired and active. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the lessons in there are, you know, respecting the process. Like I think if there's anything, and Utkarsh pointed this out when I talked to him the other day, like the movie doesn't exactly demonstrate how long all of this took. You know, right. like this is going on for many, many years, you know, before Hamilton and then Freestyle Love Supreme being on Broadway and remind me to tell you the experience of seeing it in person. Yeah. But just the idea that it's friendship, it's pure love and devotion to a very particular art form that forces you in a way that other art forms perhaps don't do as stridently to be completely present and to be in the purest expression of your personal truth. In the moment too, yeah, right? In like, the moment. Completely. I, I love I love when Lynn has to puke like before the right. show. Like even every time. Now. Like even now. Yeah. And, and um I mean I think that's amazing. And like talking about Tommy, he's he's like one of those that knows how to coach the greats. You know, that's what they say about mm-hmm. great directors. They know how to coach the best yeah. actors and the yeah. best uh, the best creatives. So yeah. I think that that's not an easy skill to have. I mean, that's right. That's amazing. And Chris Jackson, who was George Washington in Hamilton, mm-hmm. um, he was in this group from right. the beginning. He was in In the Heights. So it's it does show you like the last, like, if you can form a band of creative souls like that, you can yeah. stick together. Uh, it's incredible where that can take you. Yeah. Um, and you saw them. I did. How did so you saw, I remember so, you going, it was like last fall, right? It was in November. Yeah. I was in New York and I was there to do some, I can't remember why I was there, do some podcasts and stuff like that. But I was like, I'm seeing this show. Yeah. Ukarsh is like, I got you covered. I got an extra ticket for Bird, our, our, our book agent. I brought him and I had a sense of what it was going to be, but I was not prepared for just how transcendent this mm. experience was. Like it was magnificent. I mean, Bird was just like <laughs> the entire time. I've never been more entertained in a theatrical production in my life. Like Amazing. I just was astounded at the skill of these individuals to do what they do because it's so inaccessible. Like mm-hmm. the the quickness of their mind and their ability to rapidly respond to what's happening and create something so extraordinary out of whole cloth in the moment is just very difficult for me to wrap my head around. So it was incredible to witness it. How long did it and, go? I mean, I can't remember. It was like an hour and a half. And it's very audience participatory. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see in the in the documentary, they bring somebody up on the stage and they, they ask them about their day. And then they just create an <laughs> entire musical number out of this yes. person's mundane daily experience. Yes, yes. And it's the most hilarious thing you've ever seen. Mm. Um, and then afterwards, we went backstage, Bird and I went backstage, and then we're standing on the stage after everyone left. And it's like Ukarsh and me and those other guys and like Lynn's standing right there. And I was like, I'm looking at Bird, like making, I was like, how is this happening? Like, how am I standing on a Broadway stage next to Lin-Manuel Miranda with my buddy Ukarsh? Like, and I think about Ukarsh's arc and how it all could have gone terribly wrong and how he, he pulled his life together and is now able to be in his full expression, doing what he loves, and on a Broadway stage, like it's just it, it it gives me goosebumps to think about it, and and it reminds me of 
human potential. Hmm. You know, when we can become spiritually fit, what we're capable of doing. And it's never too late to actually yeah. find that redemption, right? Like if you can right. dedicate yourself back to the cause and to yourself and to be kind of connected to your self in a new way and empowered 100%. way. Um, 100%. One thing man. I forgot to mention when I had Ukarshan the other day is is he's the guy, like if you missed my podcast and you don't know who this person is, if you watch the Oscars, you will remember he was the guy on stage who did a freestyle rap like in the middle of the show where he was talking about people in the audience and uh, go back and watch that. It's pretty incredible. I think I do remember, remember that. that. I do remember that. That was Ukarsh. Okay. I do remember, remember that. Remember that? Yes. Amazing. I mean, if you're a fan of Hamilton, it's must see, obviously. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, cool. Here's our big show and tell so moment. So we have a big show and tell. Up. Yeah. Uh, there is a new plant-based product dropping right now. Uh-huh. It's a collab between KFC, <laughs> it's a, collab. a KFC Beyond Meat collab. Uh-huh. It's called Beyond Fried Chicken. And here so, it is. Blake, there, it's, it's available in how many, like 59, 59 restaurants, restaurants in Southern California? Yep. Um, not every KFC. There was one in Simi Valley. So yeah, Blake it's interesting the ones on that the they here. chose. It's like, it's not the ones you'd think are in the communities that you would associate with in, like plant-based. In Venice enthusiasm. and Los Feliz. No, it's like in kind of the, the areas where there there, it, it, there aren't so many options, which I think is great. I, I think, think it that shows, is good. Yeah. I wonder if that was part of the calculus though, it must or how be. they made those decisions yeah. about where to, where to, you know, They didn't it. tell me that. Um, they did share, you know, one of them is in Redlands, which is near Loma Linda, which is a blue zone, kind of very much a vegetarian. Mm-hmm place and there's other vegetarian fast food places in Loma Linda. Yeah. Um, but they said it was a wheat and soy protein. So not the pea protein that you get beyond, of, beyond burgers. Patty, the burger is, yeah. is a pea protein base. So this is wheat and soy. This is wheat and soy. I'm not sure they didn't, they didn't kind of divulge if it's using the same cow gut machines uh-huh. that from the, but I'm guessing not. I'm guessing it's totally different. I know that it started in 2019 when KFC um, and Beyond got together, and I think it was KFC approached them, but uh, um, at least that's what the right. press agent said to me. Beyond Meat is also available at Carl's Jr., I believe. As a burger? Their, as a burger, yeah. And Impossible is the fat burger place, right? Uh, place. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, no, well, I what, think burger, burger King is burger the King, Burger King is Impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Carl's Jr. is Beyond, so, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we picked this up. And the idea was we were going to do a taste test. I've never tried this, but then Adam informed me that- It is being handled by the same uh, people that handle the chicken and fried in the same fryers, which is- Obviously, that's not surprising. That's not ideal. So it's as not a, ideal as for, a as for a, a machine as a like vegan, this. I'm gonna I'm gonna forego but for, trying this for that a swim reason. Runner like myself, reason. that's not looking. But to Adam get on is the gonna try. They look like chicken McNuggets. They do. They they are. So. They don't look like a chicken. <laughs> that definitely does not look like a chicken. It looks like a. a, a it looks rhombus. like a hot pocket. It's a. It's a rhombus. Yeah. Oh. I can smell it though. Hmm. Mm. It's probably cold at this point. Smell those. I mean, you can taste the herbs and spices. Yeah. Kernels, herbs, and spices. It's good. It has more of, you know, a lot of times the plant-based chicken products are very rubbery. Yeah. This one has more give to the tooth. It does does have more of a chicken breast kind of uh, texture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Chewiness. Mm -hmm. Striated. DK, you should try one of these. Yeah. Blake and DK. Yeah, come on in here. 
I'm surprised you got a DK on camera. Why? Because you guys are. Too I'm going to share my. I'm going to share my opinions on this in a second. Yeah. All right. Give it a go. Tell yeah, me good. what you think. You don't want one. It does feel like Kentucky Fried Chicken on the outside. Yeah. 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 I don't have a. It smells like Kentucky Fried Chicken. I can tell you that. My palate yeah. isn't as developed as Adam, <laughs> but I would eat this. I have no yeah. problem with this. All right. Especially knowing that it's healthy. It even looks like chicken. So here's the thing. Yeah, the mm -hmm. Let's break it down. Mm -hmm. You're approving. Look, I also love Impossible Burgers, but mm -hmm. I don't think it's the healthiest way to approach your diet. Right. So here's here's the thing. This is somewhat controversial, so I want to kind of be very clear about my perspective and my opinion on this. I think the fact that there's this collab between <laughs> KFC and beyond is a good thing. Just like I support Beyond Meat's collaboration with Carl's Jr. and mm -hmm. Impossible's collaboration with Burger King. Like these are improvements, iterations on a broken system. Now, these are not health foods. Even if this was not fried in the same deep fryer where they cook chicken, I might have tasted it, but this is not something that I'm gonna be eating, maybe no. as a delicacy, like once in a very rare blue moon. But um, That's why people go to KFC for the delicacies. Yeah, you're not going to KFC or Carl's <laughs> Jr. or Burger King to eat yeah. healthy, right? They call it the caviar of fried chicken. This is food. These are not health foods. No. At the same time, I think it's a good thing that this is happening. Mm -hmm. I think that this is a move, it's a pivot away from animal agriculture. It's a pivot towards a more plant-based world. Certainly animals' lives are going to be spared as a result of this. Yeah. Um, and this is a good thing to the extent that we can introduce plant analogs to animal foods that people like and convince them that it tastes just as good and is slightly healthier than what they were eating before is a move in the right direction. And that's a move that I celebrate. There are a lot of hardcore vegans who would say, you know, you got to boycott Burger King, you got to boycott McDonald's and all these places. They're slaughtering billions of animals every year. That's all true, but we have to celebrate the wins. And we live in a capitalist society. These gigantic conglomerates are responding to consumer demand. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that the consumers are demanding plant-based foods or plant-based analogs to animal foods that they like, that's something we need to support, right? We need to fan the flames of positive change and the, if everybody starts buying the Beyond version of these chicken McNuggets at KFC, they're going to make more of those and less chickens. KFC, Burger King, McDonald's, Carl's, these are, these are companies that are not going away. No. Right? They're trying to adapt to the times. They're not doing this because they're trying to be amazing human beings. They're responding to consumer demand. They want and, money. Yeah. Basically, it's a capitalist pivot because yes. this is where consumer demand is going. And the more consumers that demand plant-based foods, the more companies like this are going to react and respond and move in a direction that is better for everybody. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, I've come to uh, embracing a plant-based, uh, almost exclusively, I should say, plant-based lifestyle because of the cruelty of the system 
and because of the water pollution and the and the runoff that comes from it and destroys oceans. So, mm-hmm. um, the system being uh, animal agriculture. Um, so, you know, that's where I come from. But I also have always liked fried chicken, and there's things I do like about that kind of old diet that I used to have. And so it's nice to, for me. I, I like having this option. Um, one thing that troubles me a little bit from all these kind of, cause they're, they're like tech companies beyond and impossible. And I yeah. love, I, I do like them and I buy their products. And so I'm, and a I fan. should say in full disclosure that I own a couple shares of beyond, <laughs> not that that's influencing right now, but I just in full transparency. <laughs> I like that. Um, I don't, but, um, but I, I, I would, I would, yeah. but, um, I don't yet. But the one thing that kind of is curious is, is, as as bad as the current kind of CAFO structure and these like the high density raising of animals is, um, you know, it, d- it didn't start that way. And it used to be um, food could be one of those things that you could empower smaller businesses and a family farm. And mm-hmm. it's obviously not that way anymore. Certainly not with chicken farming. Not with chicken farming. So I'm not saying that this is like going to change it, but there is something troubling about like the winner take all thing that happens from, from when businesses, when the siphon of money starts going to fewer and fewer straws, Mm -hmm. right. And, and, and it kind of goes up and enriches less people is it's, it's a little anti-democratic in terms of business when, um, a couple of winner, uh, winners in a space take all of the money. And so I'm not saying that that's happening yet because there are competitors in in plant-based food, food space, um, but it could get there. And so that's one thing that I think about just long-term. Right. What do you think? In other that? words, you're saying to the extent that the impossibles and the beyonds and the perhaps at some point the Memphis meets yeah. are going to basically create like an Oligopy of well, plant-based that, meat animal. If it becomes big, if it becomes bigger and bigger, right. and like it's not just a million people, but it's like, or you know, I don't know how many plant-based people there are, um, but there's a, a, you know, fifty million people buying all these products uh, on a regular basis. Uh, if it's going to less and less people, then the wealth is going into fewer pockets. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's kind of how we got into this current political situation yeah, that we're yeah, in yeah. now. Yeah. I yeah. mean, thinking broadly about that, yeah. I think that is something to bear in mind. Yeah. I mean, there is increasingly more and more competition. There were just a couple of these. Now there's lots of these companies that are, that are doing this and the technology is also rapidly evolving. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple more companies start to you know, make make their mark in this space. I agree, and maybe there's a way to do it where you're not just it's not just it's it's not a factory here and a factory there. Maybe there's a way to expand it and employ people all over. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, one downstream implication of this is the monocropping that you see with the pea and the soy and the wheat and all of that, which you know also needs to be addressed. Quinoa did that too. So, you know, it's like right. yeah. Um, there's all, it's, it's always trade-offs, right? There's no perfect solution. This is now one solution to get people who are going to KFC to maybe be like, you know what, today for my kids, I'm going to get the beyond chicken nuggets. Cause mm-hmm. I can't get my kid to eat anything. He eats the chicken nuggets. He's got to eat something or she, and I'm going to get him the beyond or her yeah. the beyond. Well, and anything's, that's a good be- thing. anything's better than chicken McNuggets. Right. Right. And these aren't so McNuggets. Let's, let's, Sorry, let's just start. Colonel. Yeah, exactly. But let's start moving in the right direction. And when we yeah. look at the, the, the biggest offenders of climate change, animal agriculture is up at the top. Yeah. So to the extent that we're creating solutions that are admittedly imperfect, 
um, that are reducing our reliance on the CAFO system to produce food for wide swaths of the population, then that's something that's good. I agree. Well again, done, guys. It's complicated. All right, let's do win of the weeks and then we'll take a break. All right. What do you got? Win of the weeks. Well, you want to go first? Well, my buddy getting a Netflix TV show and Darren. blowing up is huge. Like his book, I think, is number 10 now on Amazon, <laughs> Super Life. And his Instagram went, I think he might have had like 70,000. And I checked this morning and he's at like almost 200,000 now Amazing. in a week. Amazing. So it's great. It's he should great. be, you know, he should have. He should have a New York Times bestseller and he should have a million followers on Instagram because he deserves it and he's the real deal. So that's my win of the week. Well done, Darren. And yeah. you know what's cool is that the producer of that series, like the company that's involved, were uh, Anthony Bourdain's. They used to do Anthony Bourdain's right. show. Yeah, and it definitely, you know, it's a, it's a tip of the hat to that genre yeah. of programming. No question. Um, my win of the week is live sports coming back, yeah. which is partly why I'm wearing... This hat here, go Dodgers, go Lakers. Um, and I've been waiting for sports. You know, not not every one of our listeners here are, are fans of the ball sport, but I am basketball fanatic, baseball fanatic. And uh, there is a great vlog. Casey Neistat tweeted it out and is a huge fan of it. Um, and it's by someone who's looked up to Casey for a long time. It's a rookie from the 76ers named... Matisse Thibel, and he was a four-year player at the University of Washington. He's now a rookie on the 76ers, and he brought his camera and his particular lens to the bubble in Orlando, where all the players are, and he's got a YouTube-style show. He, he started this channel like a week ago, right. and there's like over half a million subscribers, um, and he is rocking it with these really interesting, well-done uh, edits of you yeah. know ten minute videos where you're really seeing kind of this surreal moment in professional sports up close and personal. He he does everything. He shows you the testing. He shows you the food. He shows you how they're spending their time. He shows you a little bit of the practice court. I think it's really cool. I saw Casey tweeted it out. You know, maybe at the very beginning, like right yeah. after maybe his first video, and he's like, "This is my new favorite YouTube channel." Yeah. And now I watched episode two and three today. Um, he's got almost a million views on on these videos. Mm -hmm. He's getting all this press interest. And it definitely owes a debt of creative inspiration from Casey. He's got some cool Casey edits in there and yep. stuff like that. But what I took away from it, I think they're great. Like I was fascinated to, to see this. But you just see the mundanity of these yeah. guys who are stuck basically in a average hotel yep. in Orlando with not a lot to do other than go to practice and get tested, just waiting for something to happen. Like they're playing cards and they're trying to figure out like how to spend their time during yeah. the day. And you think of NBA players living this, you know, crazy lifestyle and you realize like it's almost like they're like stuck in a dorm somewhere. Yeah. Basically. It's a trip, you know, because going in when you see the Florida numbers peaking and you worry about um people getting sick and you think about it, but like watching this actually made me feel better about the odds of them getting through the season. Oh, the precautions that they're taking are insane. Yeah, they're taking these crazy precautions. They have a lot of resources at their disposal. Um, there's really, yes, do some people who work in the bubble um, go home at night and could they possibly get infected? Yes. Could that end up in a player getting infected? Theoretically, yes, but there are so many barriers in place. I feel a lot better of their opportunity of getting through it. I also think of like, 
it is surreal. Like, I can't imagine going through that for like two or three months. Like, the 76ers are a team that's a contender. They could be there for the duration. The Lakers yeah. could be there for the duration. I mean, we hope they are. But like, um, and there's all sorts of reasons why they're there. They're there for their own financial interests. They're there for the greater financial interests of NBA players in general, because if they don't get to certain financial benchmarks, then they're, um, the the deal they have with the owners could go away and they could end up making mm -hmm. less money as a collective in, in following seasons. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they are there also to entertain. And um, they are taking a lot of discomfort and risk. And it, there is something there where it's, it's a selfless act to go to the bubble in some ways too. It's not yeah. just a selfish act to get paid. It's people who want to serve the game and, and, are do, and are putting themselves in this very bizarre situation and part of it is is a public service. So I think I think mm. that I took that away from it as well. You know, it would be wild if uh, if Matisse's YouTube videos get more views than the games. That that's not that's not completely out of the realm of possibility. Right. I, I mean, certainly some games he's gonna he's gonna <laughs> he's going to yeah. yeah yeah. He reminds me of who's the tennis player? Uh, who's the young tennis player? Sissy Pass. Sissy Pass had a YouTube channel. You know, Sissy Pass is is a top ten tennis player. You uh -huh. know, um, Matisse is is a rookie and he's kind of making his name. I mean, uh, Sissy. I love Pass the Facetimes he does with his dad. But, by the way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah 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 yeah. Um, and, but he's and but you know Sissy Pass had the same thing. He has a he has a YouTube channel and it was doing well. But he as a top 10 player, he dropped it because he has other, mm. you know, this is kind of Matisse's thing of, of able to get through the monotony, right? Mm -hmm. So he's, you right. know, he's five hours a day room, editing. He's got nothing to do. So yeah. he's just editing these videos. For hours. <laughs> I know. It's, it's amazing. Good. All right. Cool. Let's take a break. Take a quick break and we'll be back with listener questions. All right. Cool. All right, and we're back. So, listener questions, what do you got for us? Okay, cool. We're going to start with uh, some that we got through Twitter and Facebook. This is from Patrick Dean via Twitter. Really enjoying this format. Here's a question. With all the incredible online content out there, all the great videos and articles about everything from personal development and outdoor athletes to literary and social issues, how can we best ration our time? Thanks. Patrick. It's a good question. I think I think the important thing to bear in mind is your ratio of consumption mm. to creation. There's this illusion like of productivity that occurs um, when we're consuming uplifting content. We think we're actually doing something because what we're receiving is uplifting mm -hmm. and it's educational and it's informative and it makes us feel like we're capable of achieving our goals. But the illusion, of course, is that it convinces you that you've actually done something when you haven't. So I think it's really important. First of all, that's, it's good. I think it's really important to be mindful of your information diet, the kind of content that you're choosing to consume on a daily basis. Yeah, great question in that regard. Yeah, right? and, yeah, the, and, yeah. The, and to the extent that we're in this you know, stay-at-home moment for mm -hmm. a lot of us, we're spending much more time in front of our screens. And it's easy to just click and click and click and and mindlessly just hit the next YouTube you know video without thinking through is this the best allocation of my time oh it hits it for you oh it does yeah oh yeah it'll just play <laughs> yeah unless, it just hits it. unless you, you do anything interrupt the flow yeah. exactly you can just relax in the Barker lounger um, happen so yeah so you gotta you gotta first be mindful about that diet 
your information diet, your yeah. entertainment diet, and make sure that you're calibrating it so that it's in your best interest. Then you have to check the valence of consumption versus creation. Like There's that. a lot of talk about screen time, but I think screen time is too broad a term because you can be using screen time to write a book or like Matisse, edit a video right. or, you know, write a poem, like there's create music. There's there's plenty of creative, productive, positive ways to use screen time where you're actually in the creation process rather than the consumptive process. So the first thing is doing an inventory of how much of your screen time is consumptive versus creative and trying to calibrate that valence so that you're using your screen time for more creative output and then being objectively honest with yourself about the extent to which you're consuming content and perhaps deluding yourself into thinking that that's actually um, moving you towards your goals, I guess is the best way of answering that question. I like that. Do you digest or do you produce? And mm. if you're not leveraging the content that you're consuming to produce or make changes or create forward motion in your own life, then it becomes a distraction. Gary Vee says this all the time. He's like, I hope that you stop listening to me and watching me one day because if you're stuck on just watching those people who are motivating you, but you're not – like if you just watch David Goggins' videos all day long, but you never put the running shoes on and go outside or do a single push-up, then you're missing the whole point of what he's trying to explain to you. Yeah. Right? Agreed. I like that, the ratio of consumption versus creation. For me, I think of screen time. In, I don't. I don't even think about my computer. It's it's rare that like I'm on the computer unless I'm writing or working. Um, I think of my phone, and when I'm on my phone, the screen time really is yeah. a consumptive experience. Right. It's not so much a creative experience. Although I do take notes in my phone sometimes, so it can it can blur the line. What about all those TikTok dance moves you got going on, bro? Don't don't tell them about my TikTok <laughs> name. Do not do not mention right. my TikTok handle. So. In terms of consumption, are there like two or three kind of go-to things that you're always hitting? Like, is there is there like a guilty pleasure or is there something that you're always, like, is there a podcast that you kind of listen to on a regular basis uh, beyond just kind of just something for you, not really even for work? I mean, I would say podcasts are, are the thing that I consume the most on, on my phone. Uh, and I've been consuming a little bit less because I'm not in my car as much. But when I'm out training, it's definitely, you know, that's my go-to form of mm -hmm. edutainment. And I mix it up. I mean, I'd have to look at my phone to tell you what I'm listening to lately. But it tends to be, yeah, sometimes I'll use it. I, I listen to stuff that has nothing to do with anything that we talk about here. Like if I... You know, I'm not listening to the shows that are similar to my own because that feels like homework. Right. And I need to, you know, broaden my perspective in other areas. So I listen to like a lot of tech stuff. I like Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway mm -hmm. on their Pivot podcast. That's I a like good one. I like Professor Galloway's new Prof G show. I've been listening to that. I like Reply All, which is stories about the internet. Oh, cool. That are fascinating, like long form kind of journalistic deep dives into weird corners of the internet. I think that uh those guys, PJ and, and uh, Alex, who hosts that show, do an amazing job. You know, I like storytelling. Yeah, I'll listen to some Rogan podcasts, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I mix it up. Gladwell. So I, 
yeah, Gladwell for sure. Yeah. Who is, I'll say it right now, nobody does an ad read like Malcolm Gladwell. He throws He's his whole best. body into it. That's a full body experience. I want to watch it. There's a whole production yeah. that goes into how he crafts these ad reads and the writing that, that it's you, funny. Get to, you get it's a his, it, Well, you get, it's, it's his like, thing. it's where he gets to be funny, I think, right. more than anything. And, uh, right. and he is funny. Um, yeah. But yeah, I was listening to Revisionist History the last couple of days. It's good. Yeah. New season is out. Big fan. It is. He's another guy I'm trying to get on the show. We've had emails back and forth and haven't been able to make scheduling happen. And that's one I really want to do in person. So I'm willing to wait a little bit longer. I like it. Um, yeah, that's another great one. Okay. From Bell Rumi on Facebook. Uh, I feel overwhelmingly disheartened by humanity. I'm generally a happy person and laugh all the time and still do. But I find myself wanting to get evangelical about stuff I feel passionately about. But when I do, understandably, I feel like no one wants to hear it. What can I do to abate <laughs> these feelings of powerlessness and fatalism about the future of humanity and the planet? Little light question for you. Yeah, right. I feel you, Bell Rumi. Oh, um, yeah, we all um, do. Man. I'm empathetic to the melancholy. Yeah. Uh, I understand what that feels like. Um, it reminds me of, of something I tweeted a long time ago that seemed to connect with people, which was something along the lines of, if you're breaking paradigms, you can't you can't really expect people to applaud you for it. Right. Like the the mainstream is not going to take kindly to your you know counter programming. It just doesn't work that way, yeah. right? So if you're trying to do something different, if you're stepping outside of what is considered to be standard operating procedure, people tend to be threatened by that and they're defensive around it. And they're not necessarily going to celebrate you or accept you for that choice. Um, and that's just part of it. It's not personal, right? So the first thing I think is understanding that this is not an attack on you personally and people who don't want to hear it from you um, are really uh, saying more about themselves than they are about any choice that you're making. And I'm also reminded about the life of John Lewis. Like this is a guy who basically has been spent, he devoted his entire life to butting up against the system. Mm -hmm to express what he believed in, knowing that he was only gonna move the needle a little bit, but it didn't matter to him because this was his truth, right? So yeah. if it's your truth, it shouldn't matter. And I think you need to just be clear on what your values are and focus on leading the life that you wanna lead and step outside of any expectation or desire or need for anybody else to approve of that and certainly uh, from you know, free yourself from the need to convince anybody that you're right and they're and you're wrong because right. that's a recipe for the fatalism that you're currently experiencing. It's like the be the change versus trying yeah. to to get people to change. Right. And getting, there's nothing getting, wrong with activism. No. I mean, I'm a big. I mean, you, we need activists, but sometimes there's a limit to what you can do in terms of person to person. Right. Yeah. So live your life, live your truth. Feel free to express that but create a healthy boundary between yourself and any expectations you have that you're gonna be convincing anyone else to do anything differently than they're already doing. And I think it's important to always lead with compassion and love and understanding. And that's mm -hmm. another thing that John Lewis stood for, yeah. right? He's not coming from a place of anger and frustration and judgment. No. That never works for anybody. So to the extent that your advocacy or what you're trying to express to other people about your choices versus their choices, to the extent that that is tainted with 
some level of judgment or sense of superiority, uh, that's not going to work, right? No. No one wants to hear it for a reason because nobody right. wants to be told that they're doing it wrong or no one wants – and people don't want to be judged. So you have to just live your life, live your truth, and the sense of powerlessness or fatalism emanates from this attachment that you have to – other people changing, right? Control the controllables. All you can control is your behavior, what you're doing, and your reaction to the world. And to the extent that you can be more mindful and more present and more responsive and less reactive, the happier you're you're gonna be. As Guru Singh always says, Less emotion, more devotion. Ooh, like Didn't we that. say that the other yeah. the other day on the podcast? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, I'm always thinking about that. Right. That's great. More devotion, less emotion. Yeah. And um, and all I can say is, if you think people don't want to hear about biodiversity, try telling them a swim story sometime. <laughs> try they, to get they won't bother you ever again about a swim run race. <laughs> See how that goes. Try to give them the blow by blow. Here's what on you're going to do: run. you're going to put a wetsuit on and you're going to run down the street. <laughs> You're going to love it. Uh, all right. Now we're going to the voicemail. We're digging into the voicemail. So let's, should we repeat the voicemail number for people so that they can do it? Yeah, let's, put, let's, maybe let's, Blake can put that up on the screen too. So we love this wanna, new voicemail. Yeah, Adam set it up. 424-235-4626. One more time. I have to go back up here. 424-235-4626. Awesome. Let's hear from Joe from Pittsburgh. Hi, Rich and Adam. Joe from Pittsburgh. Uh, even with the question of schools reopening unresolved, many parents have already made the decision to homeschool or use cyber school this fall, myself included. Any thoughts or tricks on how to maintain sanity while both working and being a part-time teacher during this unique time in history? Thanks, guys. And feel free to use this clip on the air. So also, that was echoed by Bill Lawrence on Facebook, who was asking for advice on resources for homeschoolers mm. because he knew that you and Julie did that at one yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks, Bill and Joe, for that question. It's it's kind of a two-part question. One is homeschooling resources, and the other is how to kind of maintain sanity as a parent when you're trying to work and also homeschool kids. It's tough. You know, I don't know that I have the <laughs> the ultimate answer to that. You do. Um, but your, your as somebody, you can lock yourself yeah, in the container. I have a shipping container, <laughs> and I lock myself in it like a womb, and I say, "Don't bother me." <laughs> Seems to work pretty well. Um, at the same time, Julie and I have spent some time homeschooling our kids, and we both have worked from home for quite a while, so we have some experience in this. So, the first thing is is maintaining your sanity, and I think. Um, now that everybody is, or a lot of people are working from home now, and that's a new thing, I think it's important to have boundaries around what is work time and what is homeschooling time or or, or uh, leisure time, right? Because when you're working from home, it can all bleed into, they all bleed into each other. And then mm-hmm. you're kind of always working and never really working. And, and a lot of times you're not 100% present in whatever you're doing because these things are overlapping. So... Rule number one is establish your work hours, and during those times, that's when you're focused on your profession, right? And that also requires you to you know, communicate adequately with everybody in your family, your kids and your partner or whatever, so that everybody understands these are the hours when you're doing this thing, and here are the hours where we're going to be doing these other things. Um, and also, I think it's important to still create – a little bit of structure around this beyond just the scheduling. Like, don't just sit in your pajamas all day. Like, 
you know, it's easy to fall into a, a kind of depressive melancholy when you're at home all the time and just getting dressed like you would for a normal work day or just maintaining some of those practices, I think are important in maintaining your sanity as well. Uh, in terms of homeschooling um, resources, look, education is shifting. As Professor Galloway will tell you, uh, coronavirus is an accelerant on online learning, right? Like a lot of the traditional structures around education, I don't think are going to come back. I think there's going to we're going to see a lot of mid-tier colleges go out of business. I think we're going to see this push towards more and more online learning, and we're going to see a maturation of the technological platforms that are conducive to that. And people are starting to realize that a lot of the cost that goes into education isn't really paying dividends. Like, are you really going to pay, you know, $80,000 a year to send your kid to USC when it's basically Zoom calls? Like, right. that's going to, you know, that's going to really uh, upend the paradigm here. So this is being exacerbated and accelerated by coronavirus, and we're not going to just pivot back to the normal that we knew before. Like these changes are only going to accelerate. So what I'm saying by that is that online learning is going to become more the norm than the abnormality. That doesn't mean that kids aren't going to eventually go back to the classroom. They will, of course, at some point. I don't think it's going to be this fall for very many people. So we're in this for the long haul. Uh, in terms of homeschooling resources, I mean, Julie and I, our, our paradigm with our kids when they were younger was very much an unschooling. Um, methodology. So it wasn't a lot of, you know, Kumon and all kinds of online learning courses. We have tutors, we and we, we still do for, for Jaya, who's homeschooled. We have a couple tutors that she spends time with every week and works on projects. And, and she has some online um, stuff that she does through those tutors. But I don't have like a list of, you know, these are the websites that you go to. Does Jaya, Jaya bigger, have been homeschooled this whole time? She has been. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, she was at a school. She was at Muse for a while and now she's been homeschooled now for like the last two years. Oh, wow. Mathis goes to an art high school in downtown, but now that's all on Zoom. And it's been very difficult because the appeal of this art school was all the studio time and the darkroom right. time and all the practical you know, art-based education that she was receiving there. That was her lifeblood. And now it's just Zoom from, you know, 8.30 in the morning to 4 o'clock at night, and it's making her insane. And I don't blame her. You mm -hmm. know, kids are not wired for that. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that we're trying to mimic that classroom experience by dint of a screen, I think is a mistake. I think what we need to do is leverage the unique opportunities that are available to us to do something a little bit more creative and unique with, with our children's education. One of the opportunities I think we have is to create a more experiential-based learning experience for kids where we look at what their, and this is particular especially to younger kids, like look at what they're naturally interested in. Like what are they inclined towards when they're not being told they have to learn something? Like what are they what are, what are the things that they're into? Is it comic books? Is it, you know, drawing pictures? Is mm -hmm. it, you know, tr making beats on, you know, GarageBand? Like, what do they do when no one's looking? Mm -hmm. And then try to figure out how to create some kind of learning experience curriculum that involves that avenue, that involves that discipline, right? And use that to teach everything from math to English, 
right? Like if somebody wants to make beats, well, there's an opportunity to teach them math. Music is math, right? right. Create compositions, learn about musical notes and how they relate to math and, you know, figure out a way to, you know, translate the emotional experience of making music and listening music into words that can become an essay. Like I, I really believe in, in moving towards their natural interests and trying to figure out um, how, to, how to platform that into a greater understanding that involves other disciplines. It's a multidisciplinary right. approach. It requires a lot of attention and time on behalf of the parents, but I think that's how you get kids engaged in learning by focusing on what they're already interested in rather than trying to compel them to be interested in something that they're not. Oh, you mean like the American ethic of freedom? <laughs> um, what gotta, do you mean you gotta, by that? You have to, at least an hour a day, I want them to be indoctrinated on how freedom is so vital. <laughs> okay. Um, that's important. Uh, no, but I think it's really interesting. It reminds me of an old Outside Magazine article that I read. It was like about unschooling his kids. Like he he moved out to the woods with mm -hmm. his wife and his two young kids. And the whole idea was they weren't going to homeschool. They were going to unschool. Yeah. And they were just going to live off the land and do the best they could. It was and like a movie about that with Viva Mortensen. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. The Captain Fantastic. Right, yeah. That's different. I mean, Captain Fantastic, he ran a real school. Right. That, he did. Yes. <laughs> Those kids were smart. Or like that movie, Hannah. <laughs> yes. Did you see Yes. It's like survival school. <laughs> that, was, right? that was different. Yeah. That was like a very that was specific like, type of homeschooling. Captain Fantastic <laughs> meets like the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that's really interesting. Not mimicking normal school. What, what you what you pointed to there, that's liberating for parents because I think a lot of people want to do that because they think, and it's also that goes for don't mimic the normal work day. Mm. Like, you, like you said, you need to be able to be okay with working four or five hours maybe instead of eight and do it in a really concentrated fashion and then do the same thing with the schooling. Um, you know, maybe a morning session and an afternoon session and just like move the, these are all moving parts. They don't have to look the same way that they did. Uh, yeah. You and know, there's a lot of fear with that. Yeah. I've experienced yeah. this myself because I'm a product of a very traditional education and I'm a successful product of that system, right? Yeah. I went to prep school and I went to fancy colleges and I went to law school. And so when I look at my kids, I think, well, they need to have that experience or you know, I need to make sure that the value that I experienced is part of their upbringing. And for me, it's been a process of letting go of a lot of that because in truth, the educational system is ripe for a reboot. I yeah, mean, we're sure. dealing with the legacy of a system that was created, you know, at the dawn of the industrial age to basically create productive, create a productive workforce that was capable. And it really hasn't evolved much past that in any real tangible way. Now we have this moment, this interruptive moment in which we have the opportunity to really evaluate the validity of this system and reimagine and reinvent it. And I think, you know, the hurdle for me has always been, well, if we're doing this unschooling method or if we're doing, you know, pursuing this in a, in a, in a relatively um, untraditional way, like, are they going to know how to do math? Are they going to, I had these fears like, well, they're right. not going to learn about, you know, like pick any subject matter. Right. But when I really thought about it, I thought, well, Education doesn't really appreciate the value of the technological tools that are at our behest now. Everybody's got a supercomputer 
in their pocket yeah. that has the answer to every question they ever want asked and answered. So this modality of read and memorize seems completely ludicrous in light of that. Yeah. And what we need to do is, is focus more on critical thinking skills, life skills, leadership skills. Like how do we produce a well-rounded, self-sustaining individual with solid self-esteem and leadership skills and the ability to listen and the ability to learn and a love of learning. Like what you wanna do is create somebody who will become a lifelong learner. If somebody's enthusiastic about learning and you have a phone or a laptop, your education doesn't have a start point and an end point. Yeah. This is something you will have your entire life. So how can we instill that in young people? How okay. can we get them excited about learning? And again, it goes back to what I said at the outset, which is focus on the things that they're interested in and demonstrate to them that no matter what that interest is, it's it's like a seed that can then blossom or flourish into learning about many different Anything, aspects. Anything, because it can intersect yeah. with all these right. other disciplines. Of course, everything, everything intersects everything. with everything else. Right, it's one big web. I like that. That's really good. And I like um, what you said about mid-level universities, because I, I always knew that Trump University, it wasn't that university, <laughs> it was the time. Yeah. It was, if he, if he launched it now, it would be mm. a huge hit. It would be a huge hit. Maybe. Um, yes. Uh, Julie from Southern Minnesota. Let's hear from Julie. This is a good question. Hi, my name is Julie from Southern Minnesota. My question is, what advice do you have for a person who's on a fixed income, about 40 pounds overweight, though nobody ever guesses me at my current weight of 180, um, and with a knee that's been giving me problems because I'm now 51 and arthritis has decided to take up residence in my knee. <laughs> so any suggestions? Um, obviously, I don't want to be a elite athlete, but I do want to take up running. That is one of my dreams and goals. Mm. And so I'm just wondering if you can give me a Cliff Notes version of how I work up to that. Um, otherwise, I'm in good health, just chubby with a bad knee. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Julie. Thank you for your question. That's a good question. Mm. A dream of becoming a runner. Mm. I like it. And I appreciate and applaud your your honesty. Um, first of all, I'd say I'm not a doctor, so I'm not in a position to give you medical advice with respect to your arthritis and your knee. So I don't know exactly what's going on with your knee, and I, I'm, I'm reluctant to, you know, say anything that's gonna um, exacerbate whatever's going on there. So the first thing is I would go to the doctor and figure out exactly what's going on there, what you can and you can't do, so that whatever activity you do um, take up isn't going to make that knee problem worse. To the extent that it's manageable, my best suggestion for you is to get out and go for a walk. These things start with that, right? You're on a fixed income. It doesn't cost anything to go out and walk. You don't need to buy fancy shoes. You don't need to buy anything. All you need to do is put one foot in front of the other. And if you ask any of the people that I've had on the podcast who have gone from being severely overweight to becoming ultra runners, people like Josh Johnny, it started with a walk around the block, right? 
and you just build very gradually upon that. So that's my only and best suggestion is to just begin. Whatever excuses you're telling yourself about what you can and you can't do are keeping you paralyzed and stuck on the couch. And it really doesn't have to be anything that scary or onerous than that initial walk. And then after you've been doing that a little bit and you walk a little bit farther and you walk a little bit farther, maybe try to jog for 10 or 15 yards and see how that feels. And then the next day you go a little bit longer and you stay on top of that knee and you ice it and you go to the doctor and you eat foods that are healing, that are anti-inflammatory, that are anti high in antioxidants. And the weight will start to drop gradually. This isn't like a crash diet thing or a, a situation where you're going to snap your fingers and your life's going to change overnight. This is a lifestyle shift. The idea is you want to make this shift that has staying power, that helps you fall in love with movement, that brings joy into your life by virtue of exercising your body so that it becomes an embedded habit and the easy choice rather than the hard choice. So walk out the door, walk around the block, celebrate the small wins, start to make tweaks, small tweaks in your diet. And as you start to see very gradual results, you'll experience what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast with respect to goals. You'll start to feel more emotionally attached to this journey, more invested in it. You'll develop that momentum. And before you know it, it will become a self-perpetuating motion machine that's going to take you on an amazing journey. I like it. And physical therapy can also help with a knee sometimes. Right. And to get advice from a physical therapist um, would be something I'd recommend. Help me with, I had a really bad foot for a long, long time. And if you, so if you haven't explored physical therapy, you can usually get that even on a fixed income, you can usually get that um, with uh, your health coverage, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're, if you're, if your insurance covers that great beyond the physical therapy and, and going to the doctor about your knee, the grand total cost of this experiment is $0. Right. I love it. Um, and I remember when I was first getting back into running after being on the shelf with that foot problem for a year, uh, started with five minutes running, five minute walks, you know, you, mm. you like a fartlek type thing, but not at a high intensity. Yeah. Is that something you recommend too? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big believer in that. Yeah, yeah. Run walks. Cool. We got one more for you. This one is from Cleveland, Ohio, from Allie. Hi, Rich and Adam. My name's Allie. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and it's certainly okay for you to put this on the air. My question for you is what your relationship is to money. And I know that you briefly touched on this in the last episode, but I graduated college um, a little over a year ago, and I actually decided to pursue a career in finance because I know that it can be um, a lucrative. I have student loans to pay off and goals of my own. But B, I understand that it's really important for people to have a solid financial plan backing them so that they can actually reach their goals. But at, one po at what point is it too much to be saving, you know, too much for retirement or caring too much about what you have in the banks, you can do things in the future and, you know, choosing to live your life now because I feel like I'm very, very frugal right now with the hope that, 
in the next few years I can do more of what I want to do, but it certainly takes away from the sort of purpose I want to have in my life right now because I'm so focused on saving and acquiring money for the future. Thanks, Richard Adam. Love you guys. Thanks for your question. You sound like a very responsible person. Totally. Much more responsible than I was. She would have had nothing to do with me when I was 20. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's a great question. I think that uh, it's important to be fiscally responsible as a young person and to to develop healthy habits around money um, at a young age uh, and and a healthy respect for what it can and can't do. I respect that she paid her way through college. Yeah, it's incredible, it's amazing. right? Anybody who does that, like, celebrate that person yeah. right there. Um, and I think it's perfectly acceptable and laudable to pursue a career path that will provide you with financial stability. Like, I suspect if she paid for her own college that she might be coming from a, a background in which it wasn't as financially stable as... She would have liked, and and people who, who come from that background are going to be the people who are more likely to pursue a conventional career path that's mm-hmm. going to provide them with the financial stability that they lacked. I'm just I'm just projecting, but it sounds like that might be the case here. Yeah, hundred percent understandable that she would want that and need that because that if that's the case, that was lacking beforehand. Yeah, I think what she's getting at and what's important to reckon with here is. This idea, well, I'm going to get, I'm going to create financial stability for myself, and I'm going to defer those things that I really want to do um, for the sake of creating that foundation. The idea behind that is is perfectly fine, like I said, but the fear is that you never get to the purpose part, right? Because what happens, and I've seen this a million times. I saw it in law school with people who were like, I'm going to go into, you know, I'm, I'm going to go work. You know, the people, a lot of people go to law school because they want to help humans in certain ways, like in a nonprofit context. But then you accumulate all this debt. Right. And these law firms come along and they're dangling six-figure starting salaries. And, and people say, well, I'm just going to go do the corporate law thing for a couple of years, pay off my debt, and then I'm going to go do the thing. And what happens more often than not is you – you acclimate to that salary and you start to create a lifestyle that only that salary will afford. Mm -hmm. And there's a keeping up with the Joneses thing that starts to occur. And before you know it, you're leasing a car that you can't quite afford and you're in a mortgage and all these things then make you stuck in a career path. And it makes it more and more difficult to then shift gears and pursue that passion yeah. purposeful life that you had aspirations for as a young person. So the good news is you're super young, your whole life is ahead of you. Pursue that career path in finance, create that foundation of financial stability. But I would strongly suggest, not that you're not doing this already, but that you live as minimally as possible um, and refrain from any of those expenses that later on can prevent you from being nimble with your career. You know, it sounds like you're good at saving money, which is fantastic. Um, and also to remember that it's important to, to invest in experience, right? If you keep your overhead low, you create choices for yourself mm-hmm. and flexibility with your career path. And you have the ability to invest in experiences, whether those are trips or 
learning things that you want to learn in your life, career, other hobbies, things like that. Um, as long as you can do that, then you then have the freedom to make those changes later, later on in life. It's really great advice. Um, the only thing I'd add to that is- I didn't do is any of those things as a young person. Me? I didn't. You didn't. Yeah. No. Well, you were a dashing swimmer at Stanford. Uh, no, but I made a lot of mistakes. I wish I could change. So my, my message to young people is always like live lean. Right. You know, and, and, and try to protect that ability to be flexible and nimble. I think that's right. And I, I think that's great advice. And it seems like she's on that path. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like she's acquiring a whole lot at this mm-hmm. point. Right. Um, but I would say that this, this, cra- this craving for purpose is real and FOMO is real. And sometimes mm-hmm. we're so attached back to the, the consumption, but so attached to our phones. And we see people living lives of so-called purpose or having these experiences that are like, you know, bucket list type experiences. And, and, and she's like grinding it out, saving money. Um, first of all, a lot of that is, is false. It's not right. as great and or ideal as it, it looks like. So don't, don't, you know, you got to make sure to check yourself. I'm not saying that she is indulging in f- or or subject to FOMO. We, we all are at some level. Um, but the other thing I would say is purpose doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be sensible career or purpose. It can mm-hmm. be both. And mm-hmm. and your purpose doesn't have to be your sensible career. And in, in the interim, I think purpose is going to be really important for you to be able to get through kind of grinding weeks that are harder to get through. And one way of doing that is volunteering or finding some way to connect with something that you do care about. Um, so I, I would say that there there are ways to mitigate that in the interim before you kind of make that nimble jump to I think to that's a really important career. point. And we think of like, purpose in this binary context. Like you're either in this financially secure career or you're living this purpose driven, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And it's not that way. You can find purpose in, in any, in anything that you're doing in any pursuit. And if you feel, you know, bereft of that in your particular career choice, you can find purpose in just trying to be of maximum service to the people that you report to, or just doing the best job that you can. Absolutely. You can like zen in on the, the actions you're taking at work. You can, you know, volunteer as a literacy coach or something like that or or help people with finances that might need help mm-hmm. or uh, people in trouble with their mortgages, whatever it might be. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but yeah, uh, thanks for the question. It's a good one. Cool. That's what we, we have, man. We did it. We wrapped it. How do you feel? I feel good. I like that we're we're shaping this thing into something. Uh, well, I told you at the outset, yeah. we could create a structure for it, but ultimately it's going to tell us what it wants to be. And I think we're slowly finding that. Yeah. But I think we're hitting a, a good stride with this. Yeah. And uh, it's always good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, man. My pleasure. We'll be back in another two weeks. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow Adam at Adam Skolnick. I'm easy to find at Rich Roll Everywhere. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify. As always, you can find links to everything we discussed today in the show notes on the episode page on my website at richroll.com. You can submit your questions on the Facebook group or on the voicemail, 424-235-4626. At some point, I'll uh, I'll memorize that. Yeah, and, uh, and tell me how you feel about wearing a mask. No, don't. No, but, <laughs> but wear a mask. And don't yeah. tell me anything about your feelings about it, but just wear right. one. Um, all right. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate you. I uh, don't take your attention for granted. It means a lot that you s- spend this time 
uh, with me and with Adam every, yeah, every thank couple you guys. weeks. So appreciate it. Thanks to everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis to my left here for videoing today's show and creating all the clips that we share on social media. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Uh, Allie Rogers and Davey Greenberg, who generally do portraits, but no one's here today. Uh, Georgia Whaler for copywriting. DK, my man right over here, for advertiser relationships and so much more. DK? Including taste testing the Beyond KFC today. He taste tested like three of them. I know. And theme music by Tyler Trapper <laughs> and Hari. Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple days with another amazing episode. Until then, what do you want to sign off with? Don't you do your I'll signature? i put you on the spot. Me? Yeah. Be cool, be kind. There you go. Peace. Plants. <laughs>